Thank you, Father, for this time together with these people this morning. I'm humbled by your grace and your mercy for your people. Thank you for the truths that are found in this text. Thank you that your word is made available to us. Would you please bless this time as we look to what you've done through your son, Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, blessed forever. Amen. So church, if you would open your Bibles, turn on your tablets to the letter of 1 John. If, if you don't have a Bible, you can find one under the chair in front of you. Uh, and the text will be found on page 1021. 1021. I'm going to read our whole text and then we're going to dig into it. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 says this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Not surprisingly, John begins by addressing the person of Christ. In these first few verses, John is affirming both the deity and the humanity of Jesus. Because Christ is the Christian life. Christianity rises and falls on the person of Christ. And who is he, really? Jesus Christ is the highlight of this letter because he's like no other person that ever walked this earth. He's so extraordinary. And John is turning the eyes of the reader to the person of Christ, to the eternality of Christ, and also to the humanity of Christ. He's always existed but he's also, he was very much present with John and a host of others. He really did walk this earth as a man, but also as fully God himself. Jesus Christ is both eternal and human, and John wants us to know this truth. And in this long three-sentence, uh, or three-verse sentence, John is going to hammer this point across to us. And understand, church, that this truth about Christ, that he's both God and man, that can be a really difficult thing to comprehend. And maybe it was for you at one point. Maybe it, maybe it is for you today. And I would say that it's difficult mostly because if Jesus is who John says he is, then you must worship and trust and obey and put your faith in him alone and no one else. There's no room for another way of life. There's no room for other idols. There's no room for a split devotion. We must obey this Jesus and bend a knee to him as our king. Jesus, fully God, fully man. How can this be? And how do we know that this is true? Well, John starts by letting us know that this story is not fiction. He's giving us an eyewitness account in this letter. With his eyes and his ears, he witnessed Jesus in the flesh. He saw him preach. He heard him preach. He, he walked with him. He watched him minister and heal. He watched him eat. He ate with him. 
He's making it clear that this testimony about Christ is firsthand. And he isn't alone. We see John use the word we or a version of we 50 times in this letter. He's not the only one that witnessed this. There were multiple people witnessing these very same things about Christ. Not only did they observe it with their eyes and their ears, but John physically touched Jesus. They knew him. So let's take a look. That which is from the beginning. It would be a mistake to undermine the significance of the statement. No one predates Jesus. Rather, he predates everything and everyone. There was a time in the beginning where humans didn't exist. None of us could say that we've always been there. The beginning for us was when we were conceived, but for Jesus, he can say, I was there before. There's only one being that's always been there. John beats this drum that Jesus always existed. And we've seen this language before from John. John's writings are are rooted consistently in Jesus' deity, in his eternality, in his godness. And it looks familiar, right? Okay, Gospel of John, John 1.1. In the beginning, same language, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, verse 2. He was in the beginning, same language, with God. And all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus was always there. John is hammering, again, this truth. It's not to be questioned. He was always there with the Father. From the very beginning, Jesus is divine. And there are plenty of other verses in the New Testament that refer to Jesus as God, as creator of all things. To name a few, John 1 Going further in that chapter, John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. John 20, 28, when Thomas is faced with Jesus, Thomas responds, my Lord, my God. And then shifting to some of Paul's letters, Colossians 2, for in him the whole fullness of deity bodily dwells, him being Jesus. Romans 9, 5, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Jesus is God. And this truth shouldn't get lost or be understated. Jesus didn't show up on the scene when he was born to Mary. No, rather he was there. He was always there. That which is from the beginning. Christianity, church, rises and falls on this truth. Jesus is also human. John continues. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John emphasized the physical body of Christ. Here in verse one, and then again in verse three, he heard and saw Jesus in the flesh, spent time with him, walked with him, talked with him. The Greek word for have touched with our hands is better translated as have physically handled Jesus. In early 2020, I went to a Lakers game, like right before COVID. Like, hurry up and get back. You're going to be stuck here. Went to a Lakers game, and we were gifted with really good seats. We had lined up at the tunnels to watch these massive humans just kind of run into the game. And all these kids have their hands out, and a few adults are like, slap my hand. 
And these guys, these impressive, massive hands are slapping, slapping. I'm like, man, some people consider these guys godlike. These massive, big hands, they were real. As real and giant as those hands were, Jesus had real hands too. I don't know if they were giant, but they were, they were real, flesh and bone. And John isn't talking about a, a handshake or a high five with Jesus. John physically handled him. They spent real time together. They embraced, they laughed together. They ate meals together. As real and as physical as our relationships are, John had that with Jesus. When they greeted each other, just a squeeze of the shoulder and a pat on the back. How you doing, brother? John 13, 23, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. Other translations would say that John reclined on Jesus. He knew him. He knew his personality. He knew his smell. And you know, those, believe it or not, there's other cultures uh, that are more affectionate than American culture. Jenny and I traveled to India our second year of marriage, and we went to visit these missionaries that we'd been supporting. And one of the things that I noticed about the men there in particular is that it wasn't uncommon for them to physically show affection for one another. I remember distinctly seeing them walk down the street, three of them, with their arms around each other's necks, walking in lockstep, smiles and laughing. Just friends. Saw that all the time. One of the missionaries there, he wanted to give me a tour of his very humble home. I'm not used to holding a man's hand. And he says, Brother Josh, let's go. So we walk hand in hand through his, <laughs> through his property. And I'm just like, I'm here. All right. At times, he'd pull my hand to his chest, and Brother Josh, this is where the orphans sleep. Come, Brother Josh, let's go walk over here. John knew Jesus this way. This was how human Jesus had been to John. There was a physical relationship there. And so he was from the beginning, God, always there, and he was present with them where they saw and heard and touched Jesus, man. Jesus was both God and man at once. You know, I think an easy thing for most people in the world to at the very least accept is the spirituality of Jesus. And what I mean by spirituality is that Jesus can be a spiritual guide, that he's more of an ideology. That belief in Jesus means that I'm generally gonna be a good person, I'm gonna do good things, make good decisions, and be nice to my neighbor, and things like that. I think John Piper says it well. Quote, many are willing to believe in Christ if he remains a merely spiritual reality. But when we preach that Christ has become a particular man in a particular place, issuing particular commands and dying on a particular cross, exposing the particular sins of our particular lives, then the preaching ceases to be acceptable for many. It's predominantly a good idea for most people to have Jesus exist as a guide to good morals. It's another thing entirely if Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus is who John says he is, that he is God and he died on the cross as a man. If that's true, which it is, then we can't ignore Jesus. We can't ignore what he did on the cross. And what did he do? 
What did Jesus do for us? We stood guilty before God, Romans 3.23. We needed saving, and God provided that saving through his son, Jesus. Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Only a God-man can do that. Only a God-man can erase our sins. We can't ignore it. We must believe in him. So John is saying, listen, reader, he's fully God, there from the beginning, and fully man. I've seen it with my own eyes. He was there with the Father from the beginning. There didn't exist a time where Jesus was not there, and he was absolutely present on earth, and John wants us to rightly know his deity and his humanity. Christianity, church, rises and falls on this truth. Verse two, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. This is a necessary and natural next step of Christianity. After recognizing Jesus as the God-man who died and rose for us, you testify and proclaim this eternal life. John and the rest of the apostles had all witnessed these things about Jesus. And when you witness and know and understand and recognize and apprehend all of these things about Jesus, then you proclaim these things about Jesus. John and his crew had been out there proclaiming the life of Jesus. Jesus had radically changed them and they can't stop talking about it. Proclaim is the main verb in this text with a particular emphasis on apostolic preaching. They were saying the words with their mouths. They weren't just living good moral lives and hoping that somebody might ask them about their morals and then lead into a conversation. No. Have you ever been so passionate about something that you can't stop talking about it? A new Netflix series. Top Gun Maverick, that's the new one, right? Everybody talks about that. A new restaurant, good book. The keto diet, somebody, right? CrossFit, CrossFitters can't stop talking about CrossFit. You guys know that? These guys were so radically changed and they had witnessed so many radical things about Jesus, they couldn't help proclaim him to the world with their mouths. And understand that they were suppressed. They were living under Roman rule, waiting for this promised Messiah, and he had finally arrived. And we see another emphasis in this text that, that Jesus' life, what they had been proclaiming, this was made manifest to them. It wasn't something that they were necessarily looking for. They were waiting for it. But rather, light was shown on something that already existed. Jesus was revealed to them. And they couldn't be silent about it. They were telling everyone about their king. Everyone, including the recipients of this letter. And he goes on in verse three. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. This is another necessary next step. And this is where John kind of brings things in-house. He shifts the reader's focus toward relationships. And I hope that this sentiment isn't lost. Rather, it's, it's stirred up in us. 
The way that we get fellowship is in our understanding of Jesus and the proclamation of Jesus. We talk about Jesus. We understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us. John could not remain silent about this eternal, life-giving word. He and his crew had been sharing it to the world, and he also wanted to specifically share with the recipients of this letter. He was compelled to do it. Similar to Paul in Romans 1. Uh, Romans 1.14 says, I'm under obligation, Paul says, I'm under obligation to both Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. And so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul wasn't eager to preach just because he liked preaching. No, he knows that the fellowship grows because of an understanding of who Jesus is. And he wanted people to know that message, to see that fellowship grow. This life that John witnessed was too special to keep silent about. It was revealed to him, and he was eager to share it with those around him. And so let me ask the question, are we eager to share the same message? Do we take the opportunities that he gives us to talk about him? Who specifically has God put in your life that needs to hear, see, and know Jesus? This is really convicting for me as I was looking at this. Are there people that you interact with on a regular basis that have no idea that you're a Christian and love Christ? Why? And what are you going to do to change that? Why did John say that he was proclaiming? We proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. This is an invitation to be a part of this family. And nothing unites like Christ unites. I'm sure you guys can attest to that. I have stronger relationships in the church than that of my own kin. You can take people from all different kinds of upbringings, backgrounds, cultures, etc. You can bring together folks with wildly different interests. Sports, cars, music, academics, finance, kids, no kids, age. And if they have Christ in common... It's an eternal relationship. It doesn't matter what we have in common outside of Jesus because Jesus Christ transcends all barriers. He is central to the Christian life. And John is saying, I want you to participate in this eternal word with me so that we could share an eternal life with Christ. Jesus is inclusive in that his work on the cross is sufficient for all the world. Yet eternal life is reserved for those who belong to him. Christians are in an exclusive club in that regard. Everyone's invited, but only those who believe reap the benefits of Jesus. And John wanted everyone to know this gospel, to bring as many people in as he could. Everyone to know this Jesus. And he wanted everyone to participate in the fellowship of a church family. We should be stirred up to share the same message to welcome more people in, be a part of this family. And to what end? So that you too may have fellowship with us and then it gets better. And indeed, our fellowship is with who? The Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. It gets better 
The church is great. Like I said, these relationships are special. I wouldn't trade them for anything. I look around this room and I'm, I have nothing but thankfulness to God for the relationships that he's given me because of this church. But these relationships, though they are great, they're not perfect. I could get frustrated with you. You could get frustrated with me. We can, I'm sure we can all attest to that. The elders are not perfect men. I judge them constantly. No. This guy. I kid. No, but we're not. We're far from it. We're not perfect. But I count all of these relationships that I have as gain in my life. And I hope you do too. That's the fellowship that God's given me. But the end, the pinnacle of where fellowship lies is where? With the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. It gets better. God doesn't need us. Understand that. He doesn't need us. Perfect fellowship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit already existed before time began. But out of love, he made us. The creator of everything made a way for us to be with him. And because of his grace, he invites us to have a relationship with a father and a brother in Jesus that will never fail us. Where our earthly relationships let us down and break down, he won't. Where our earthly fathers have fallen short, He's more than enough. His all-sufficient grace and love for us. We were a people who needed rescuing. He gave all. He gave his son. And he made a way for us. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. And here's the why. That he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Jesus' sacrifice brings us into the Father. He brings us near to him. The relationship that was severed because of sin is fully restored by the work of Christ on the cross. Think about that. That is our family. All of these excellent brothers and sisters and a perfect father and son, Jesus Christ. What a truth. Our fellowship ultimately relies with him. Okay, and so we're gonna end as John states one of his purposes for writing. Verse four, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The purpose for John writing all of this so far, that Jesus is from the beginning, yet he's fully man, that they witnessed him in the flesh, they heard him and saw him, and then they proclaimed that, and that they want the fellowship to be extended, and that our, our fellowship ultimately lies with the Father and Son. All of that was written for the sake of our joy. Jesus being who John said he was completes that joy. Jesus being eternal and from the beginning, Jesus being flesh being fully man and living a sinless, perfect life. The person of Jesus Christ is the center of our Christian life. And therefore, he, Jesus, is the ultimate reason for our joy. No matter our earthly circumstance, there is reason to rejoice. Knowing and rightly understanding where we've come from helps that joy. We stood opposed to God. And Jesus turned wrath into favor. He brought us near to God 
through the work of, of his son on the cross. And that's all we have to hang our hat on is Christ's work. Christianity rises and falls on Jesus alone. So take heart, church. Stand amazed. We can rejoice in that. And I feel like I need to say that we won't always want to rejoice. We could be sitting here right now thinking, this is not easy. I'm in a spot where I feel like joy is just too far off. And I want to encourage you that you are never alone. The fellowship that you have here is a grace to you from your Father. Praise Him for that. Lean on your church to a degree. Look to your heavenly Father. Meet Him in His Word. We have more copies of the Bible than I mean, than I could think of. And when I was in India, they were like, do you have any extra Bibles? I'm like, yeah, which version? I have, I have all these translations on my phone. We have all this available to us. Meet him in his word. Seek him in prayer. Let others pray for you. And whatever you're going through, in Christ know that your suffering is not for nothing, that it is a light momentary affliction, 2 Corinthians 4.17, and it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You won't always be in that valley. But you can rejoice and know that God loves you and that he wants you to be a part of his fellowship. That is a truth that we rejoice in, brothers and sisters. We can be joyful knowing where we've come from, that we're slaves to sin, headed for hell, and where we're going because of Christ, that we are going to have eternal life with him. Our joy is made complete in knowing who Jesus is. And in knowing that our fellowship ultimately lies with him. Lean into Jesus and rejoice in that. And enjoy each other in the same, in the same sense. And praise God for what he's done for us. We're going to have an opportunity now to do this. To rejoice and remember right now. As you see, we have the communion table before us. We're going to take communion. And we're going to do it like we have in the last few months. If you're new here, just try to follow somebody else that looks like they, uh, they know the, the order of traffic. Uh, we're going to go up these outer aisles and then back down the middle aisle to our seats. Uh, but I would say uh, today, specifically, after we take our elements, reflect specifically on the person of Jesus Christ and what you heard this morning. Jesus is God. He was always there from the beginning of time. And he came to this earth because we needed saving. We'd sinned. We stood guilty before a holy God. There was a price that needed to be paid, and Jesus paid that debt. Only a God-man can do that. There's no good work that we can do that can earn favor uh, with God. We can't do it. Jesus had to do it. We, we need to only put our faith and trust in him. He paid our debt once and for all. It is finished, he said on the cross. Dwell on these truths and rejoice in them. And when we observe communion, we're proclaiming this truth about Jesus. This is a proclamation, the scripture says, that we're making together as a family. So communion is for believers only because only Christians proclaim Jesus. We are proclaiming Christ and him crucified for our sins. If you're a Christian, when you're dismissed, come up, take the elements, and then head back to your seats and hold them.
and dwell on these truths and we'll, we'll partake together. If you're not a Christian, the table's not for you. Sit in your chair and reflect on what you heard this morning. And I would add that Jesus is holding his hand out to you. The invitation to be a part of this fellowship with the Father and with the Son, that's for you too. Take that hand. Come be a part of this family. If you have questions, I'll be here after. You can talk to me. Bob's up here. Ben's on the back. Talk to somebody from the band. And so I'm going to pray. After I pray, music's going to play. And then when you're ready, you'll get up and go through these outside aisles. There's two on this side, one on this side. Collect your elements and then go back to your seats through this middle aisle here. And then hold them. And then we'll partake together. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time this morning. You're a good and gracious God. I pray our hearts would be similar to John's and, and that we want so badly for others to know you, to be welcomed into this fellowship with you and your son, Jesus. Thank you for sending him to earth to be a sacrifice for our sins and making a way for us to have eternal life with you. We remember and proclaim Jesus as we come to this communion table now, Lord. Would you bless this time? We pray this in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen.